the title of my talk is We Are Caretakers of Our Water. This is the belief and conviction of a group of citizens north of Kingston around the vicinity of Napanee who believe in that dictum that we are indeed keepers of our water. The people are from two communities, a First Nations community and a white rural community. The First Nations community call themselves the Mohawks of the Bay of Quinte. The Mohawks came to Canada at the end of the American Revolutionary War. They were allies of the British in the war, but they lost their traditional homeland called the Mohawk Valley, which is in, today in upstate New York. The British promised them a new homeland in Canada. So they traveled from the Mohawk Valley to Quebec, where they holed up in Lachine for about seven years before they got a new homeland. They chose the North Shore of Lake Ontario as their new home because it was familiar territory. It was their summer hunting grounds. So in the spring of 1784, after the ice had broken up, they came by canoe from Quebec and landed on the shores of the Bay of Quinte. The white rural community are descendants of the Loyalists, who also came to Canada after the American Revolution. They are also descendants of immigrants from Ireland and Scotland who came to Canada when potato crops failed in their home countries. Still others are discharged soldiers who are from Britain, Scotland, uh, Britain, Germany, and France, and other European countries. So we have these two communities who lived side by side for over 200 years, but they didn't speak to each other, and they didn't associate with each other. They derived their drinking water from wells fed by groundwater. The wells in the Mohawk community are mostly what we call goody wells, that is groundwater under the influence of surface water. Some of the wells outside the, the Mohawk territory are also goody wells. So they were all concerned about the groundwater 
that fed their wealths. Finally, they came together and started to work together. So in so the situation was thus when I came on the scene. In 2005, environmental lawyers, environmental lawyer Richard Lindgren contacted me. Over lunch, he told me that he represented a group of citizens called, who called themselves the concerned citizens of Tyndinaga and environs. They were opposed to an expand, a landfill expansion which a company called Canadian Waste Services had purchased and was planning to expand it into a mega landfill, mostly to receive garbage from Toronto. He told me that he was looking for someone to assess the health impacts of this development on the local population. I listened to him and considered his request, but I had to think long and hard because I knew it was a lot of work. And at the time, I was still teaching and doing research at Queen's. But the story was intriguing and interesting, so I said yes. And soon after, I said yes to the Mohawks of the Bay of Quinty. The rest is history. Now, I went around the countryside and realized quickly that the geology of the location of the landfill was of utmost importance. The landfill called Richmond Landfill lies on the Napanee Plain. The Napanee Plain is one of North America's great limestone plains, and it extends from Kingston on the, to the east and Belleville to the west. The limestone is about 50 meters thick and is riddled with fissures, underground channels, and caverns. These these fissures are horizontal, vertical, and oblique, and they allow groundwater to travel far and wide, which is impossible to track. So based on these geological characteristic, characteristics, it was judged that the site is unsuitable for a landfill and unsafe for garbage. Have we got the audio up? Yes. No. Yes. Have we? Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. good. Yeah. So, where am I now? 
Let me go back to the paper. Okay, that's good. Yeah. So the technology is now working. Now, I was talking about the limestone that formed the base of the Napanee landfill. Underneath the limestone lies a much harder bedrock, the granite of the Canadian Shield. The junction between the limestone and the granite is often the location of groundwater aquifers. And this is where the residents in the area get their well water from. Good. Now in Ontario, I don't know which is better, in the front or at the back here. In Ontario, the development of a landfill is governed by the Environmental Assessment Act. The Act comprises two steps. The terms of reference, which describes the scope of the project and the work plan. The second step is the environmental assessment itself. The proponent cannot begin work on the environmental assessment until the terms of reference has been approved by the minister. Both of these steps meant public consultation is mandatory. The terms of reference, let me just see when they were. The, the company submitted the terms of reference in June 1999. After submission of the terms of reference, the public has a right to have their input and they can write letters to the ministry to be considered before a decision is made. But at this time, the public consultation and the information provided by company had convinced the local citizens that the project was not safe for their community's water. But these were early days, and they didn't know what to do or how to organize. So in July 1999, they retained environmental lawyer Richard Lindgren from the Canadian Environmental Law Association. He advised them that if you want to fight a dump, you need to leave a paper trail, which means you need to write to the ministry to tell them or to inform them how unsafe you think the project is. But they didn't know how to organize in the early days. So then they started to organize. 
more and more people got involved in the area. And the proponent started to make plans to proceed with the environmental assessment. But the environmental lawyer, Richard Lindgren, took the case to court. So we had, they had four years of legal wrangling, first a judicial review, then an appeal, and then the appeal was overturned. And in 2004, that's four years of legal wrangling, the back, the environmental assessment is back on the table. So the company began its public consultation. But as public consultation proceeded, opposition ramped up. What was it about the consultation that irked people so much? They used the citizens as hostages for their, their legal obligation to consult. So the citizens had to come to evening meetings. And remember, these were hardworking people, farmers. And they didn't have the time to spend two evenings a week sitting at a consultation meeting. But they didn't dare stay away in case they missed something. So they came. So what, how did the company conduct its public consultation? They would have their experts discuss complex issues. So that would be data presented in tables, charts, graphs, which the local folk couldn't understand. And they felt intimidated. One woman said, you didn't need to have a lawyer to understand this. And Chief Miracle, the chief of the Mohawks of the Bay of Quinty said, we sit, they talk. We don't consider that consultation. These are the same arguments, I think, that were prevalent in the pipeline, that consultation was not conducted properly. So the, the, the uh, company submitted their EA, I think, in 2005. And now the local citizens, the opposition knew what to do. They decided they had to indeed leave a paper trail. So they walked the streets, they went to hockey arenas, they went to farmers markets, they went to church, they knocked on doors. They went everywhere where there were people. And they urged their neighbors and whoever they met to write to the ministry to persuade the minister that this was not a wise project, and that this project had potential to damage their, to impact their community's water. This was the time 
when I got involved, uh, I had to, I was asked by Richard Lingen to look at the health impacts of the project and to write a report to submit to the ministry. So I wrote a report with the conclusion that the project as described in the environmental assessment didn't have enough evidence to demonstrate that the project would not have negative impacts on the local population. So over 7,000 letters washed up on the shores of the Ministry of the Environment, plus 11 technical reports from geologists, hydrogeologists, and I wrote the health impact reports for both the Mohawks of the Bay of Quinte and for the local citizens. So now we had to wait for decisions to be made by the ministry. In uh, 2005-2006, the ministry released its government review. The government review is carried out by agencies within the Ministry of the Environment. They form a committee to review the environmental assessment. What was their conclusion? Their conclusion was that they recommended that the environmental assessment, assessment be not approved. So the citizens were cautiously joyful. Now they waited for the minister's decision. And it was quite a long wait. But in December 2006, Laura Broughton, Minister of the Environment, released her decision. She had decided to reject the environmental assessment. She said the people didn't want it based on the number of letters she received. The community didn't really want this expansion. Secondly, she said the reports that she received convinced her that the development was not a safe project and that the site was not safe for a landfill expansion. So she rejected it. Of course, there was great celebration among the citizens and the Mohawks, but it wasn't over. The old landfill was still there, and they didn't want another corporation or company to come in and expand it, and then they would have to fight all over again. So they decided that the best thing was to get the landfill closed. But there, they met a lot of resistance from the Ministry of the Environment. And after five years of agitation and struggle, the Ministry finally closed the landfill down. 
But was it over? No, not quite. Now we had to worry about terms and conditions of closure. Because a landfill doesn't stop polluting for hundreds of years. In fact, somebody told me that leachate, which is the product of garbage, is still being produced by the Romans who threw their garbage out. So it goes on for a very long time. So we wanted to have proper terms and conditions of closure. The ministry introduced seven conditions, at least among them, there were seven conditions which the citizens disagreed with. But it was not possible to go back to the ministry to appeal these conditions because it would be like putting the fox in charge of the hen house. So they appealed to the Environmental Review Tribunal who gave them leave to appeal seven conditions of closure for the landfill. Let me just see where I am at. So there were a lot of meetings and mediation sessions. So there was agreement on some of them. But the most contentious we couldn't agree on, and that is how much contamination is allowed in the water. The issue is complicated because at this time, six wells, private wells outside the landfill has been contaminated. So it means that leachate has gone out of the landfill. And the other issue that complicates the situation is that there's no drinking water standard for certain chemicals, either in provincial ones or federal ones. We decided that the best indicator of contamination with leachate was a compound called 1,4-dioxane. Let me see if I can get this AV working. There. Good, can you see? So 1,4-dioxane is, we considered, the best leachate indicator. Now, what is this chemical called 1,4-dioxane? It's present in a lot of products. And I have only listed here a few of them. In the meantime, I have also found out that 1,4-dioxane is used by pharmaceutical companies to purify drugs. And the one that really distressed me was to find out that 1,4-dioxane is used in the production of ice cream. So. It's widespread, and it sticks around. And why is this such a good leachate indicator? It's mixable with water. 
It does not attach to soil particles. It can move readily from soil to groundwater. It is stable in water, and in groundwater, it moves ahead of other contaminants. So we couldn't come to agreement on how much 1,4-dioxane should be allowed in the groundwater. Now, provincial legislation stipulates that when you have a contaminant within a landfill, 25% of that contaminant is allowed to exit the site. This is called the reasonable, reasonable use limit. So 25% of the level of the contaminant. So this had to be resolved in a hearing because as I mentioned, there's no drinking water standard either provincially or federally. So we had to decide on a standard for use at the site. So we had a hearing in the spring of 2015. And in the hearing, Waste Management, which is the company, in fact, it's the world's biggest waste management company. So we had a formidable opponent. Waste management had an expert consultant that they brought in from the United States. His name is Michael Dorson. He put forward a standard of 350 micrograms per liter. So the reasonable use standard would be 87.5, which is 25% of 350. Waste management decided to distance themselves from their expert and put forward a level of 30 micrograms per liter. But they said, we didn't want to calculate a reasonable use limit. We're going to use this as our compliance limit. So 30 micrograms per liter is the standard, and their compliance limit is 30 micrograms per liter. This is like mudding the waters. The Ministry of the Environment put forward also a standard of 30 micrograms per liter with a reasonable use limit of 7.5. I represented the concerned citizens. I recommended a standard of 3 micrograms per liter with a reasonable use limit of 0.75, and I'll round it up to 1. I'd like you to take note that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, their standard for drinking water is 0.35 micrograms per liter at, at a cancer risk level of 1 times 10 to the minus 6. So that is 1 in a million. Now, what is this? Uh, one for dioxane. Regulatory agencies have classified it. The International Agency for Research on Cancer, IAC, 
has classified it as possibly carcinogenic to humans. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has called it reasonably anticipated to be a human carcinogen. And the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency judges it likely to be carcinogenic to humans. These classifications are based on sufficient evidence in animals. Now, I'd like to explain a little bit how we came up with these numbers. Okay? How I came up with one and how other people came up with the hundreds because the rationale might be different. Now, a chemical causes damage or cancer effects by two mechanisms. One is a threshold mechanism. The second one is a linear mechanism. In the threshold mechanism, the exposure level below a certain level, the effects are not observed. So you have a level below which you don't get any effects and a level above which you get the negative or deleterious effects. Now, in the linear mechanism, we call this a summation effect because every time you get exposed, it adds up. So it's a summation effect. So the effect of even the smallest dose of a carcinogen remains and adds to the background burden. So then, these two mechanisms target different chemicals. The threshold mechanism works for chemicals that cause acute effects, whereas the linear mechanism targets is used for carcinogens. So every time you get exposed to a carcinogen, it keeps adding up. So my rationale for the standard that I proposed or recommended is that safe thresholds levels do not exist for carcinogens, and that exposure to a carcinogen should be as low as possible. In other words, I do not recommend exposure to carcinogens. So the tribunal made its decision. We were happy that the tribunal agreed with my recommendation. And they set the reasonable use limit at one microgram per liter and the drinking water standard at three micrograms per liter. Now, there is another issue here at play if the groundwater outside the landfill boundary is contaminated, what do you do? The province has legislation that says that the proponent has to set up what we call 
a contaminant attenuation zone. Okay. So if the groundwater is contaminated, the proponent has to buy the land in which the groundwater is contaminated and allow through time for the contaminant to deteriorate. So in this case, they have to drill, get samples of the groundwater, and test. So for the contaminant attenuation zone, the tribunal has also set a reasonable use limit of one based on a drinking water standard of three. So when the proponent drills a site, they have to go all around the landfill boundary, so north, south, east, west, all around. They have to drill, get samples of the water, test it, and if it's more than one, they have to go further out and drill again and test. This has been going on for the last three years. But there's one issue now that remains unresolved. The farmer on the east side of the landfill has, I've, I think, about 10 acres of land. I'm not so sure, but quite a lot of land. The water underneath his farmland is contaminated. So what does the company have to do? The company has to buy the land. The farmer wants a steep price. The company does not want to pay because they think it's too much. So we have an impasse. So I asked the Ministry of the Environment, I said, what do you do in a situation like this? He said, either they have to buy the property or they have to pump the contaminated water out, set up a facility and clean the water. I don't think that has been resolved and the concerned citizens in Yapani are waiting to see who is going to blink first. Okay. Okay, fast forward to August 2018. Chief Miracle alerted me to the fact that Health Canada has issued a drinking water guideline of 50 micrograms per liter for 1,4-dioxane. I was shocked. I'd like to remind you that this 50 micrograms per liter guideline is very important for First Nations because reserves and First Nations territories are under federal jurisdiction. So this guideline applies to them. But because here in Ontario, we don't have a provincial drinking water standard this federal standard also applies to our drinking water. I think 50 micrograms is way too high to have in our drinking water. So I looked at the report 
and I realize how this has come about. I think that depending on the, the data that they have used, they have come up with this 50. So the chief took the issue to the Assembly of First Nations annual meeting. The First Nations passed the resolution reiterating that the drinking water guidelines should not be more than three micrograms per liter. They sent the resolution signed by all the chiefs to Health Canada. I know that Health Canada is going to issue a new guideline, but I don't know what it is. Before I finish this talk, I'd like to leave you with some last words. When the environmental assessment of waste management was rejected, one of the journalists who worked with us contacted the headquarters of the company in Houston. And he said to them, he asked them, what do you think about the fact of your environment, uh, environmental assessment being rejected. Now, this is a big deal because it's only the second time in the history of Ontario that an environmental assessment has been rejected. So the official said, I can't believe that we got beat by a bunch of poor farmers and an old Indian chief. <laughs> Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.